Hello and welcome to the second ever episode of the God Save the Screen podcast with me, Sam Oliver. I'm recording this on Thursday afternoon. Hope you've got a lovely weekend lined up. I've got a few days off work now, so happy days. Gonna use one of them to see Killers of the Flower Moon probably because I need a whole day to see it. Realistically, with the runtime and the fact there's no cinema really near me, it's gonna be about five hours out of my day. So I couldn't really do it after work because then I'll just see it and go to sleep and want to give it my full attention that Mr. Scorsese so deserves. So I need to really kick this podcast off with two separate apologies, which is a really good start. The first apology is about this is coming out late, uh, was meant to come out last Thursday. I got ill. I sounded like Kermit the Frog. I was going to lean into it and pretend it was like a whole Muppets thing, but it it didn't really work. It wasn't going to go anywhere. I thought people would be confused if Kermit the Frog was reviewing British TV shows. And there was also probably like a rights, copyright issue. It it just wasn't going to work. I don't feel I'm at that stage yet creatively where I can introduce Muppets into the show. So it's delayed by a week. So that's the first apology is for not bringing you Kermit. And I'm so sorry about that. The second apology is about the fact that once this episode is done, this show will have been about three separate, very infamous British monsters. And this isn't meant to be a true crime podcast, so I apologise for that. Episode one, obviously the reckoning about Jimmy Savile. This episode is a double header of The Long Shadow, which is depicting the victims of Peter Sutcliffe. And then... Maxine as well, which is about Maxine Carr. So I'm sorry, that's not what this podcast is meant to be. I've accidentally made Maxine Carr one of the sounder people I discuss in this podcast so far of its short life, which doesn't feel great, you know, coming out my mouth out loud, doesn't feel right, doesn't sit well with me, probably doesn't sit well with you either. I'm sorry, I will endeavour to do some goofy sitcoms or lighter-hearted shows or just even fake crime, anything but true crime, the next three episodes. We don't do that many more goofy sitcoms in the UK. I might do an episode about why we don't. Just aren't as many, and when they're rather not as famous. I can only take half the blame, really. So much of what TV shows are now is just true crime, and it shouldn't be. But look at me taking part in it. Look at you listening, also taking part. You prick, well done. So, I'm sorry. I will endeavour to do some different genres. But for now, we are diving in to The Long Shadow. So, I wasn't going to cover this show, and not just because of what I mentioned earlier about too much true crime shows. More specifically, I wasn't going to do it because there's too many Yorkshire Ripper shows. I was really headstrong on the fact I wasn't going to cover this show. Because the amount of shows about the Yorkshire Ripper the last few years is ridiculous. So just on the major broadcasters since 2019, there's been a three-part BBC documentary called The Yorkshire Ripper Files. That was in 2019. In 2020 on Netflix, there was a very poorly titled true crime docuseries thing called The Ripper. In 2022 on Channel 5, there was a show called The Ripper Speaks The Lost Tapes. And in 2022 again, and also on ITV actually, like The Long Shadow is, there was a three-part docuseries called Yorkshire Ripper, The Secret Murders. And in 2022, ITV, who also did The Long Shadow, did a show called Yorkshire Ripper, The Secret Murders, which was a three-part docuseries. 
Now, this might be because he's died recently, Peter Sutcliffe. I think he died in 2020 or around then. But this is just such a bizarre, wrong feeling saturation of TV shows about Peter Sutcliffe. And this is just TV shows. This isn't covering books or films or podcasts or articles or whatever the fuck else there is about Peter Sutcliffe. So I really wasn't going to do this show at all. But then I saw the cast and I thought, oh, fuck, I now have to do this show. Because goodness me, what a fucking cast. It feels like it's tailored to me, this cast, my specific tastes and people I enjoy in British TV shows. So you got Lee Ingleby, David Morrissey, Catherine Kelly, Toby Jones, Liz White, Daniel Mays, Adam James pops up at the end. I even see Adam James in a play. I never watch fucking plays. It's such an amazing cast that I was blown away reading. It's basically my Oppenheimer cast. It's very important to me. And if while I was reading out those list of names, you were thinking of the Norm MacDonald, all the stars I hear thing, because you don't know them, or a lot of them, fuck you. You're probably just listening to support me, and I really appreciate it, but this cast is important to me. Like I said, it's my Oppenheimer, this cast. So the cast is really what drew me in. And despite that, and it being well-received, which I knew going in, I wasn't that hopeful because I was thinking there's so many shows about it. What story's being told better? What's new? Why Why are you doing this? Was really my lead reservation going in. So I was really sceptical, and I was thinking I might watch an episode or two and then just sack it off and not review it and not watch it. But I didn't, and I watched all of it because it's really good. There's a few core things it does really well that either I wasn't expecting it to do well, just because most shows don't. And the first one is that this show, it's actually about the victims. And that probably doesn't sound very interesting or special or important, but I think it is because so many shows, true crime shows, try and say it's about the victims or say it's about the victims but it fucking isn't. It's not. It's through the eyes of the perpetrator or police and the victims are very much just there and it's happening to them. This show is about the victims in a very real sense. In a way, a show like, for example, Dharma definitely fucking wasn't. You saw this really early on, uh, in the first couple minutes even, because we start with the murder of Wilma McCann and the focus very early on is on her and then it shifts to her kids. You never see the incident take place. You never see Peter Sutcliffe, I think, until about the sixth episode of The Seven. So that was a very good early way of basically telling the audience this is actually about the victims. And not just the victims, but who they're left behind, the secondary victims, if you like, the the mourners. You start with her kids at the bus stop waiting for her and they realise something's very wrong. And this was a constant they kept throughout. And I think it's a benefit of having seven episodes to play with, because a lot of these shows... Now they get between sort of three to six. But this show had seven episodes. And I think that helped it a lot because it allowed you to get to know Emily Jackson. It allowed you to get to know Jacqueline Hall. And you, as the viewer, you you miss them. You feel it when they go. And it, not only them, but it allows you to know their loved ones, their kids, their relatives. So it gives you that, that sense of loss that I don't think you get from most other true crime shows because they're too busy focusing on 
the perpetrator or the police. And I think this focused on the victims in a very real way. And I think that was allowed to happen because of having seven episodes, having a bit more time to run through it. And another benefit of having seven episodes is not every scene or every ending of an episode has to always lead to the next incident, to the next thing. They can be there to shape a narrative or to give more characterization to people that otherwise might not get it, that aren't necessarily a main player in this story or a main victim or a loved one of a victim, but still have a story worth telling. And I think that allowed two episode endings that very nearly made me cry and I was so grateful were included in the show. And it was the end of episode five where they really brilliantly twist the fake tape that was sent in. So there was a hoax tape sent in by someone claiming to be the Yorkshire Ripper that we now know was not the Yorkshire Ripper, was just some dick pissing about. And he plays a song at the end, and I can't remember the name of the song. It might be Thank You For Being A Friend, because the song features the line, Thank You For Being A Friend. And they twist that at the end with the lawyer, Ruth Bundy, going to the house of Marcella Claxton, one of the surviving victims of Peter Sutcliffe that was not believed by police. Ruth Bundy was the lawyer that believed her and tried to help her and fought for her. And they have the lyric of the song, thank you for being a friend, playing. And at the start, it seems very eerie and sad because we know as the viewers, this is going to send the police down a wrong path and is a bad thing. But then when it says the line, thank you for being a friend, and it's Ruth Bundy at the door saying she's going to help Marcella Claxton, it's such a powerful moment, the twisting of the horror of the tape and actually making it somehow really beautiful, that that line, they used it to focus on the solidarity and the support Ruth Bundy gave the victims. That was fantastic. And that's something I'm not sure you can do if you have three episodes. I'm not sure you have time to focus on someone like Ruth Bundy, which I'm so glad they did because her story is so fantastic. And then the same thing, the ending of episode six with that really moving Reclaim the Night montage. Again, that doesn't actually further really the story that's told in episode seven and doesn't jump you to anything, but it gives a characterization of actually the era rather than one specific person. Because I can't remember if there were specific characters we already knew in that Reclaim the Night march. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But that wasn't really the point. It was about women fighting back really against the era they were in. Um, And that's something I was so grateful was included because it was incredibly moving because you've seen six episodes of women being treated fucking appallingly, women that have been victims of hideous crimes, treated hideously by male police officers and even by their male loved ones. And that just that montage of that reclaim the night with the chanting and the, the signs, it was incredibly moving. And I'm so glad they put it in. And that was another way of making it about victims and also people that could have been victims and were victims of the era. I was so grateful they included that. And they all they honed in on the victims the whole time. They never let the focus of the show slip away from that very much. And they did that incredibly in the last episode in a few different ways. First of all, they don't show the confession or the trial of Peter Sutcliffe, which was exactly the right decision. That would have been fucking pointless. And I was dreading that a bit because I thought they were going to do it because I thought think they'd had to. You see him get caught, but you don't see him confess or no trial. It's given one sentence. Yeah, he's confessed. He's convicted, whatever. 
Perfect. Didn't need it. And the ending of the show, the last two thirds of the last episode, again, is all about the victims. And they make the brilliant decision to circle background to the family of Wilma McCann that you see in the first episode that you do you do ultimately forget as the show goes on. You see so many other people, you know, become victims or one of their loved ones become a victim. You do forget about the first family because they're in the first episode and that's it. And that was such a smart thing to do because it makes you take stock of the show as a whole and what you've actually just seen and what you've just watched. So that was such a brilliant thing to add in. And it did, as I said, make you feel a bit guilty as a viewer for forgetting them. At least that's what I felt. And they never let the police out their jaws either as well, which we'll get into a bit more later. But even at the very, very ending, they tell you that after everything Marcella Claxton went through with not being believed, with being treated horribly by police, after being attacked and surviving Peter Sutcliffe, she got 17 and a half grand and her benefits stopped. And then Gregory, I can't remember his first name, the inept police chief who fucked a lot of it up, got 40 grand for selling his story. They never let the police out their jaws, out of the fucking crosshairs, in a way the reckoning really did. It stayed on focus so well, and it kept that rage with it, and it infected you with that rage as well, about how badly the police fucked this, and how much they congratulated themselves at the end, and it never let go of that, and it stayed on focus throughout the whole thing. That was fantastic. So I said the first sort of core thing that I liked was how it was actually about the victims and how it portrayed them. And I thought the second core thing it did really well was how it depicted the sexism of not just the police, but the time they were in and how the two things drove each other. It was depicted really well, but never overdone. And it was always institutional and widespread from the era. It was never about one bad apple that the police had to get rid of. One of the police officers wasn't hideously sexist compared to the rest. They were all just very sexist. And if, you, if you've if you seen Black Klansman, the Spike Lee film in 2017, they did this all wrong, which really annoyed me. They had all the police be a bit racist, but one really racist guy. And at the end, they get rid of the really racist guy and everyone cheers. They're like, yeah, we're less racist now. And I'm so glad there wasn't a sexism equivalent in this. There was no one fictional bad apple they got rid of. Then it all got a little bit better. They didn't do that. They showed really well how this is what the era was. And they were all fucking pigs, basically. It's largely focused on sex workers, yes, because they treat them horrifically. But even their own female police officers, there's that hideous scene where they're picking one to go undercover. And the two male police officers go in and they basically just pick the one they think is attractive and just say, okay, you're going undercover. Um, here's a radio. Yeah, yeah, you'll be fine. Don't worry. I dress like a whore. Yeah, yeah, go in. Okay, see ya. And they don't even teach her how to use the radio. There's that scene where she runs away fucking terrified because she has no training in being undercover. Didn't volunteer for it, which she says later, I had to do it. And they're like, oh, you don't use the radio. You just push the button. It, it, they were so... Treated as so unbelievably disposable. And you get the, the eye-wateringly infuriating scene where they've caught Peter Sutcliffe. But I don't think at this point they knew for sure it was him. They suspected him. And there's that scene where he, Peter Sutcliffe says something like, 
you know, it's not me that's a criminal, it's whores that are criminals. And they, in a very real way, the police officers go, yeah, yeah, we know. And that was a great thing to include because it showed how, it showed how Peter Sutcliffe's attitude towards sex workers was at least partly shared by police officers. It was, yeah, they're criminals, they're, you know, they deserve it. I think one of them actually says a few episodes earlier, it's a shame he's targeting innocent lasses rather than prostitutes. And it, it's really uncomfortable to watch, but really important to include. And it was always police as well. It never let it out its jaws, both in how it portrayed the sex workers and their struggle through everything, and how it showed the police treating them horribly and literally empathising with Peter fucking Sutcliffe at points. And I think Toby Jones's character was a really good example of how someone can have issues with sexism of the time in the police, but not do anything about it, either be too weak or too feeble or not care enough to do anything about it. And it actually made me think of Siobhan Finnanen from Reckoning, who I spoke about a couple of weeks ago. When you know someone or something is rotten and you can't really do anything about it because that thing or person or institution is so much bigger than you. You just have to live in that world. And they did that really well. And I spoke earlier about the sexism of the era, not just in the police. And I think they did that excellently with Daniel Mays' character. And the whole plotline about him and his family is his wife, played by Catherine Kelly, is going to be a sex worker for some money because they're fucking broke. And whenever he tries to persuade her, the language they use, it's very subtly sexist, but in a really deliberate, specific way. He'll always say something like, no, you're my wife. You're the mother of my children. He never says, no, no, it's dangerous. No, please don't. It's, it's never, it's always still about him. And then she slaps him. And I was really happy about that for two reasons. Firstly, he fucking deserved it. Secondly, it means the notes I was making previously about her sexist language was spot on. Just about how everything he said was always centered on him, even when it was meant to be about her. Always centered on him. They did that excellently and how sniveling and pathetic he was when he was like at the pub looking out for her, but he fucking wasn't because he was at the pub. He does the same. He was the only good character in White Lines as well, which is again when he played a sniveling little coward, dribbly man. He's good at that. He should keep doing that. Very good. So yeah, the second core thing that I loved was how they depicted the sexism of the time in a very real, grounded way, both from the era that they were in and just how the police force were. That was excellently done. And thirdly and finally, um, just the casting and the characterization I thought was excellent. Whenever this kind of show comes out, everyone's wanting to see what does Peter Sutcliffe look like? How's he been betrayed? But there were so many other good bits here as well. Uh, one really small thing they did that I loved was they had Brian McCarty as the first solicitor. Uh, Brian McCarty plays Tommy Hunter in Line of Duty, one of the most repugnant, disgusting men ever put to fiction on British TV. So I thought making him play the first solicitor we see added so much to the horrible, creepy evilness of the whole thing. It added it really made my skin crawl. Largely because it was Brian McCarty, who I can only see as Tommy Hunter now. I really hope they cast him because he played Tommy Hunter. Because that added so much to me. I thought that was really clever. Um, and just, I mentioned earlier, Peter Sutcliffe, I thought they got his depiction really well, really as low-key as it should have been. By all accounts, he was just a 
quite pathetic, weak, boring person to actually speak to. And they did that really well. They didn't fall into the trap of making him be like charming or whatever the fuck. I thought Mark Stobart was excellent. Uh, he's actually in season four of Line of Duty, which I've probably seen about 50,000 times. I didn't clock it was him until I looked at the cast at the end. And I thought he was excellent. I thought he was really good. And that's on hair and makeup and costume as well. So I thought it was excellent. And just on the characters and the um, the casting, the characterization, I thought they actually did a really good job of differentiating between Toby Jones's character, Lee Ingleby's, and David Morrissey's. Because normally when you get a police power shift thing, it's usually one person's replaced and by another police officer. And one of them is all gruff and masculine and others a bit wet. That's a stereotype as old as time. But between three, they did a really good job of advancing their characterization and the story at the same time. So Toby Jones' character I mentioned earlier was a bit more introspective, a bit more of a deep thinker, didn't like the sexism of the time, but wasn't strong enough to do anything about it. Lee Ingleby's was super, just a crap police officer. He was really overly cautious to link crimes, was somehow very sexist, but also really pathetic in how sexist he was. It seemed to stem from his weakness, which actually, again, in Line of Duty, he kind of has. Hmm, interesting. And David Morrissey, again, was the, the brasher of the three. Very headstrong, quite rude. So they did a really good job of, in seven episodes, when none of these three's characters are ever really feel like the main ones, of still giving them their own separate personality traits. And you actually saw that filter through to how the investigation got conducted. And I thought that was sort of a low-key thing that did really well. With David Morrissey in particular, his desperation with the tape was just agonizingly tragic and sad to watch. How he just went down that rabbit hole, that tunnel vision of the tape, everything back to the tape. And Peter Sutcliffe, I think, was actually ruled out in real life because he was adamant the Yorkshire Ripper had to have a Geordie accent because the guy on the tape did. I thought that was really good, how desperate and pathetic he got. And even when the Yorkshire Ripper's caught, actually... He's angry he's not part of it. One of the first things he asks when they say they've got him is, does he have a Geordie accent? That's what he cares about, is was I right? Did I have this spot on or have I completely fucked it? And then even when they say who caught him, he's like, what? He confessed to two poppies in Sheffield. He's, his ego couldn't handle that it wasn't him. And I thought that was excellent. And that almost ties into the sexism as well, actually, just that when being headstrong just becomes being a dick, basically. <laughs> Uh, I thought I thought I thought David Morrissey portrayed that very well, and actually on on the tape as well. I think I was really grateful they included the scene where they realise it's bollocks that it isn't the Ripper, and just how easy it is. It it wasn't some genius schemer who was like the Riddler and Batman, like somehow knows everything. It was some weirdo who actually ended up even miscounting the victims, and they were so desperate for anything they just clung onto it and you saw that at the end how he how David Morris's character couldn't be as happy as the rest of them he couldn't take how badly he'd fucked it up and I think ultimately that's what this story had to be this wasn't about some devious genius scheming killer it was a fucking loser and he was allowed to do horrific things for so long by misogyny that drove huge systemic failings and that's exactly what this show had to be and I'm so grateful it was so I was skeptical going in but the long shadow 
because of how it portrayed the victims and made it about them, because of how good the cast was and the characterization was, and because of the very grounded but impactful way they portrayed the sexism of the police at the time, five stars from me. I thought it was fantastic. And now we go on to Maxine. Now, I originally wasn't going to do this show either, and that's because mainly I didn't think I'd get enough content out of three episodes, and I sort of didn't, which is why it's tacked on to the end of another show. Secondly, I didn't think it was that interesting. And thirdly, it did come out in 2022, but it's only recently come out on Netflix, so I do think there will be people that have seen it for the first time recently. But actually, what made me want to watch it was the reviews, even though they were bad. Now, that isn't me being weird and annoying and contrarian. It was what the bad reviews actually said that made me think this could be worth watching. Because I saw a couple, one of which was in The Guardian, and it said, this show, I don't like it because it makes out Maxine Carr to be a victim. No, I thought that was interesting, because my understanding of this story was that she kind of was and wasn't, but she kind of was. So I thought this could have been a really interesting story about when does culpability start and begin if you're an abused woman? What would you do in these circumstances? That kind of thing. Not even an empathetic look, but just a more well-rounded look at what really happened. And it didn't do it. It, di- it didn't do it. This story ultimately wasn't done properly. It wasn't what it should have been. This should have been a really deep dive into Maxine Carr's relationship with Ian Huntley and her position as an abused woman, but also ultimately an enabler of the hideous things he did. And it just wasn't. We had to understand what their relationship was before this incident to really have an understanding of that. And they didn't show it. You get an impression in the first 10 minutes that, yes, he's controlling and paranoid, but it's just shown to you in little snippets. It's not the deep dive I think this had to be for this show to be worthwhile. And I think part of the issue with that is that they start this show at the wrong time. They start this show near enough a day or two before, I think, the crime taking place. And that's wrong because you don't, you never get that backstory that in this case is actually necessary for this show to be worthwhile or any good. And the third episode as well is a complete waste of fucking time. You've got three 45-minute episodes. Why are you spending the last one largely in court and with legal legalese for something that we know we know what's going to fucking happen why are you showing us this about t- i actually went back and checked about 10 percent of this whole show is set in court and a lot of it is huntley testifying in court and what he's why why are you showing us this what what, what is this adding to the story you're supposedly meant to be telling why are you showing us that really really annoyed me because it, it just felt lazy. Oh, we got to show Court. And that's what the Long Shadow didn't do. It didn't show Sutcliffe and Court or Sutcliffe confessing. Because we fucking know. What's interesting about that? We know. what new. You're not telling us nothing new. What are you doing? And then it actually occurred to me, this show would have been so much better if its third episode didn't exist, its second episode was its last episode, its first episode was its second episode, and the first episode was an episode we didn't get about their relationship being Maxine and Ian, their relationship together. That would have made this show actually about what it was meant to be, which is Maxine Carr. But they didn't, 
they started off with what I think was a very interesting premise and they just didn't go with it. They just did a retelling of a bad, of a sad story. And I think that's a shame because I think this could have been really interesting, even without taking a particularly strong point of view. This, it could have been really interesting and it just wasn't. They just showed what happened. And there were also lots of little things, some of which happened really early on, which meant I just wasn't excited about this or didn't think it was going to be good. Quite a lot of yucky foreshadowing, long lingering shots on the boot of Ian Huntley's car. Why? Why have you done this show's called Maxine? Supposed to be about this woman who now has to live anonymously for the rest of her life as public enemy number one. And actually, does she deserve that? That's what this show should have been about. And almost from the off, they tell you it's not because they're doing this gross foreshadowing suspense building, which is totally, tonally, utterly wrong. That's what they don't do in The Long Shadow. And that's a great comparison between the two in just where The Long Shadow stands up and where Maxine totally falls down. Um, And they don't show the victims or their families at all. Which, if this show was done properly, would have been okay. If this was the show we had promised, that would have been fine. But if you're just retelling what happened, which ultimately this show did do, it, that felt more disrespectful, actually. I, I didn't appreciate that. And I was kind of waiting in the last episode that en- ended up being fucking a court legalese about the dive into Maxine that would make that okay. And they didn't do it. So that omission felt wrong. And they also had this very odd journalist subplot which they actually also had in Broadchurch that annoyed me when they it's kind of felt like they wrote the story thought oh we've got half an hour left oh we'll throw in there's a local journalist and a big city journalist and the local journalist is more respectful and local journalism is dying and it's really important why have you done this why are you showing this to us this takes up big chunks of time in a show that's got what 100 135 minutes And large chunks of it are dedicated to these two journalists who have differing views but ultimately get along and it's all okay but journalism might be in trouble. I don't care. Well, I do, but not right now. Why are you telling me this now? It's happened in a few other shows as well. It's very weird. It's just like a stock, oh, we need a B or a C plot. Oh, just throw that in. Journalism is dying, so, you know, why not throw it in? Annoying. So much wasted time in this show. The word I'd ultimately use for this show was cowardly. It gave us an interesting premise that I didn't deliver on at all, already come close to delivering. And I thought that was a shame. And I think this show is actually very well summed up, summed up by its ending, in which someone, God knows who, asked Maxine Carr, did you know? And she just gives you a little weird look where you can't take anything from, but if... It's a weird look, so you can take it either way. And she says, no comment. And that, for me, is exactly what this show has given us. If you hated her before, which you probably did, you still do. And if you thought she was hard done by before, you still do. And ultimately, this show has given no fucking comment to change anyone's mind either way. So that is about it. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode and you continue to come back for more. Any feedback, any reviews, any shows you'd like me to review, any abuse, still very welcome. Anything's helpful at this stage. 
Uh, if you want to get in touch, you can tweet the podcast or exit, whatever the fuck it's called now. Just say tweet, everyone else does. At GSTS Podcast. Or if you'd rather email because you refuse to X, it's GSTSPod at gmail.com. And as ever, a huge thanks to Mr. Alex Towles, the wonderful producer, editor, podcast maker. He's the reason this sounds good and not all crinkly right now. So God bless him. If you have any editing work needed done, any producing, or you just fancy a chat, hit him up on Twitter. He's a very chatty guy. His at is Alex Towles, Towles with two L's. Um, So get him to do any podcast work you need done because he is a magician. Uh, but don't give him any bananas because he hates them. Uh, he once ate 12 of them on a school trip and he got potassium poisoning. So he's now sworn off them. So for the love of Christ, don't give him a banana. And on that note, that's it from me. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>